Let's open God's Word to the epistle of James. Find chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 5 in just a moment. Once more on this Lord's Day, we find ourselves at the very beginning of this very powerful and practical word from the Lord, written by the brother of Jesus, a little letter, a first century letter to Christians scattered around the ancient world, many of them fleeing or facing persecution. And so far, as we've studied this letter, as we started last Lord's Day, we've learned that there is a purpose behind the trials and the tribulations that the Lord sends into our lives. Uh, The brother of Jesus, James, has made it abundantly clear, though, that since it's true that there is a purpose behind the trials and the sufferings of God's people, that we have a distinct attitude toward them. We have a distinct way of facing them. Uh, though these trials come continuously and they are, they are of various types and various intensities and durations, according to James, the brother of our Lord, we count them all joy. We count our trials to be an occasion for joy because we know Christ. And we know that the Lord is using these difficulties for his glory and for our good. We know that these trials that the Lord is sovereignly bringing into our lives are specifically designed to produce Christian maturity. This is the lesson in the first four verses. There's steadfastness that the Lord wants to produce in us. He wants us to be complete Christians, mature Christians. He wants us to have Christ-like virtue, Christ-like character. And so he uses the various trials as tests, as ways to prove us, as ways to improve us for his glory and for our good. Now, admittedly, what James has written in the first four verses, well, that's a challenge. The perspective that James brings on suffering. Sufferings that are painful and difficult and perplexing, the the perspective he brings goes against everything we believe and maybe everything we feel. Maybe it goes against your theology. Maybe the assumptions you've made about God and about what God does or what God does not do. Think about how absurd it must sound to those outside the gospel to say that we, as the redeemed, actually rejoice in suffering, that we rejoice in trials and in those occasions when God's great wisdom and God's great hand of providence has placed us in positions where we hurt. We rejoice. How crazy is that? How crazy is it? To believe, as Scripture teaches, that when we are afflicted, we have even more reasons for thanksgiving, that we are blessed by God. Even Jesus said that, that when all men bring against us all manner of persecutions, that we rejoice to find occasions for joy in tribulation. That's a crazy-sounding way to live, isn't it? But that is precisely the lesson of these first four verses. We count it all joy. So the question that James anticipates, the question that you have, the question that I have is, how can we count these difficulties to be a joy? How do we do that? What is the rationale behind that? 
Well, if you're asking that question, here's the answer. And the answer is supplied as we begin reading in verse 5. So let's read the Word of God together. You read it silently. Let me read it aloud. And let's see how it is we learn to count everything as joy. James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his name be praised as we hear it proclaimed. Well, the first thing we want to make note of is that there is a very definite connection between the first paragraph, verses 1 through 4, and the second paragraph that begins in verse 5. In other words, in verse 5, James starts talking about wisdom, but he doesn't do it abstractly. He doesn't do it out of the blue. What he says about wisdom is the answer to the how question we're asking. How can we count our pains and tribulations to be occasions for joy? The answer is found here. If any of you lacks wisdom. So there's a definite association with suffering and joy and wisdom. The simple answer to how we count things, in fact, everything as joy, has to do with wisdom. The key word is the word wisdom. It takes a mind conformed to the wisdom that comes from God in order to please the Lord and to understand our trials. In other words, what we need, if we want to know how to live this life that James, the brother of our Lord, is calling us to live, we need a complete reworking of the way we think. It has to do with wisdom. We need renewed minds. And only by the acquisition of wisdom will we then appreciate everything God is doing, everything God is bringing into our lives, that these trials are not accidents. These trials are blessings designed, sent by the Lord, but only a person who has wisdom can appreciate that. So wisdom is essential. And so James begins this second paragraph of this letter. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, maybe we could better translate that since you lack wisdom because we all need more than we have. We all need wisdom. It is simply assumed by James that God's people need wisdom and that wisdom is essential. Wisdom is essential if we're going to see the meaning and significance of everything the Lord brings into our lives, every happening, every situation, every event brought by God's hand of providence. It takes wisdom. It takes wisdom to see it properly and wisdom to rejoice in it. And here we see the radically distinct way that Christians respond to trouble as opposed to the way non-Christians respond to trouble. We have a different way of responding to tribulation and pain and suffering. 
And wisdom helps us rejoice. Wisdom helps us see what God is really doing. Wisdom helps us see the big picture way beyond our personal lives to what God is doing in history, not just in our personal histories, but in the history of redemption. It takes wisdom to properly see the purpose and the place of trials. It takes wisdom to rest in God's control. It takes wisdom to find the peace that God gives, even when we're being tribulated. It's what Isaiah prophesied so long ago, the steadfast of mind, Isaiah wrote, the steadfast of mind, Lord, you will keep them in perfect peace. We need a new way of thinking if we're going to be rejoicing in our tribulations. And so it's about wisdom, wisdom. But what kind of wisdom is James talking about? That's a word that you find in the vocabulary of the church and of the world. Wisdom. But what kind of wisdom is meant? Not all forms of wisdom are created equal. And I want to show you that even in this epistle. I want you to find chapter 3 of this epistle and listen to what James says about wisdom. Not all kinds of wisdom are created equal. Chapter 3, verse 15, James contrasts two kinds of wisdom. And I'm going to submit to you that there are only two kinds of wisdom. And you are in one camp or the other. In other words, there are only two ways of thinking. There are only two ways of reasoning. And only two. There is no neutrality between these two. There is no third option. We are wise in one way or the other. And listen to the way James puts it in chapter 3, verse 15. He speaks first of the kind of wisdom we don't want. And he says there is a wisdom floating out there in the world. And listen to the descriptive language he uses. He says it is earthly, it is unspiritual, it is demonic. Now, that's one kind of wisdom, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. But then in that same verse, in that same context, he speaks of the other kind of wisdom. And this is the kind we want. He says, there is another kind of wisdom that in great distinction from that which is worldly and unspiritual and demonic, there is wisdom that comes down from above. And that's the wisdom we need. Only two kinds of wisdom. Now, this distinction in the two kinds of wisdom is something that not only James, the brother of Jesus, talked about, it's something the Apostle Paul talked about. Listen to the Apostle Paul set forth two kinds of wisdom and only two kinds. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, There's the wisdom of the world. Now, that's what James calls earthly and unspiritual and demonic. There's the wisdom of the world, he says. And then in 1 Corinthians 1.21, he says, then there's the wisdom of God. So there's a wisdom from below, earthly, spiritual, demonic, and there's a wisdom from above, the wisdom of God. One is evil, and one is good. One serves the purposes of God, and the other serves the purposes of man. And as I read what James says here in chapter 3, verse 15, my breath is taken away. Because he says, 
pulling no punches, he says, the kind of wisdom that we see at work in this fallen world is, in the final analysis, demonic. Demonic. It isn't just flawed. It isn't just a little bit off base. James says that if we're not thinking according to God's wisdom, we're thinking according to the wisdom of demons. Now, that's a stunning thing to say. Maybe that offends us. But either I've got the wisdom of God or the wisdom of Satan. Either I'm thinking like Satan and his minions or I'm thinking like God. And those are the only two options for mankind and that brings us to a word. It's a word that we don't find here in the text, but it's a word that we need to understand. It's a word we've thrown out before in the course of the history of this church. Some of you will immediately recognize it. Others, it'll be the first time you've ever heard this word, but we need to remember it. It's the word antithesis, antithesis. That means that there are Ideas or concepts or truth claims that are colliding with each other. They are irreconcilable. And James lays out the antithesis here between God's thoughts and man's thoughts. God's wisdom and man's wisdom. The only two options there are. And there is this sense of antithesis. There is antipathy. There is a contrast. There is a conflict between those two. They are in desperate conflict with each other, but they represent the only two ways one can be wise, either worldly wise or wise according to God's definition of wisdom. Now, maybe you're having trouble buying this this morning. Maybe you're pushing back a little bit, and if you are, that's okay. Let me take you further back in the story of Scripture to show you this antithesis. Let me show you the beginning of this antipathy, this collision, this contrast. Do you remember the Garden of Eden? Well, of course you do. And you remember the words of the tempter when the tempter came to Eve. The Lord had already given his word to Adam and Eve about the garden and about the tree in the middle of the garden and about the freedom they had to eat from any tree. But they could not eat from the tree in the center of the garden. They must not eat from it or they would die. And then the tempter comes to Eve. And listen again now. Listen again with a fresh sense of hearing to what the tempter said. He approaches Eve in Genesis 3, 5, and he says, For God knows, God knows, that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing, knowing good and evil. Now, what the tempter is doing there, he is holding out in this very first temptation, he is holding out for Eve the promise of a new way of thinking, a way of thinking that is independent of God. A way of thinking that is not submissive to his word. A way of thinking that is autonomous. It is divorced from any sense of creaturely dependence or accountability. Listen again. Listen again to what we're told Eve was thinking 
after Satan tempted her with this new form of knowledge. Listen to what was going on in her mind. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and she ate and she gave some to her husband and he ate and then indeed they did become wise with a wisdom that is demonic. Now that's where the antithesis started. That's where the collision started. That's where the two kinds of wisdom now are eternally opposed to one another. Adam and Eve and the entire human race became wise in the Garden of Eden. We all did. But with a wisdom in complete opposition to God, with a wisdom that is independent, with a wisdom that is man-centered and twisted and distorted, we began reasoning and thinking autonomously without any regard to God, as if He doesn't exist. As if we could discover truth without him. And this is the wisdom that James says at the end of the day is thoroughly demonic. Now, I didn't write this, okay? I'm just the delivery boy. This is what God says. In that awful moment when the human race fell, we were then holy and perpetually at odds with God's Word. From that moment on in the history of humanity, the mind of every person who's ever been born has been a mind that came from the womb opposed to the reign of God. Now, that's what we inherited from Adam and Eve. Wisdom. But demonic wisdom. And now we, by nature, defiantly stand against his kingdom. We don't think God's thoughts after him. Our reasoning and our thinking is fallen and darkened and futile and terribly damaged. It all manifests a great sense of rebellion against the Lord. And if you need more scripture, well, you're at the right place. Listen, listen to the testimony of the word of God about the two ways of thinking. And I'm going to only give you a little bit. In Genesis 6, in those days prior to the flood, the Lord looks down upon humanity, and there's this divine commentary on humanity. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And notice the emphasis on the thoughts of his heart. Isn't that a strange way of speaking? Psalm 10.4, the psalmist says, In the pride that beams from his face, the wicked do not seek him. Their thoughts are, there is no God. Or the 15th proverb, The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. Now, do you see why James says the word demonic? The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. What a a thing to say. And then think think about our Lord Jesus. 
what would you expect Jesus to say? Would you expect Jesus to say something different than the rest of the Bible? There are many people that do. There are many people that think Jesus didn't even believe the Old Testament. That he would teach something in great distinction from the Old Testament. But listen to Jesus in light of what we've just read. Jesus says, out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Again, out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And that's from Jesus. And then Paul in Romans 8, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. In the Garden of Eden, we became hostile to God in mind, in our minds. He continues, the mind of man does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It is hopelessly in rebellion against God. Or Romans 12, 2. Paul says, do not, as a Christian, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, lay aside the earthly, demonic, unspiritual wisdom and begin to think God's thoughts after him. And that's what the Christian life is about. It's about laying off the old wisdom and putting on God's wisdom. And Paul will say to the Ephesian believers, don't walk as you used to walk, as the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their minds. Can I stop and preach for a minute? Do you mind? You're like me. We are tempted to think that humanity has never been in this position before. That things have never been this bad. We're tempted to think that. You know, we're all tempted to think world history began the day we were born. And so we're baffled by the things going on. You know, we, we're baffled, to be specific, by certain decrees that come down from Washington. And we go, that's just morally and intellectually and ethically absurd. And you know what I'm talking about. And we see the behavior of people and we go, that's crazy. And we're baffled. But listen to the Apostle Paul. It has always been true that the lost have simply been exercising the futility of their minds. Nothing is new under the sun. Nothing. We just have the internet. Nothing, I could have gotten a better laugh out of that. (laughs) Nothing is new under the sun. The mind of man has always been futile. We've always been absurd in our thinking. Our our logic is illogic. Our, Our ethics are unethical. Our morality is amoral. That's always been the case. Lost people are acting the way lost people have always acted. The lost are doing what they do. They think, they think demonic thoughts. There's nothing new going on here. We should be grieved, but never surprised. Indeed grieved, but not shocked. You're seeing the futility of human wisdom. Human wisdom says, 
while looking out on a starry night, says, there was no cause to that. Or it caused itself. Human wisdom says there's no design. It's just all a big accident. There's no designer. Human wisdom says we can live as we want without consequences. And so laws come down from high command that if applied logically would lead to anarchy. But the illogic is lost on the unbelieving mind. Do you see the point? That's what human wisdom is. It makes no sense. It is irrational. Human wisdom says evil is good and good is evil. Human human wisdom says we have complete, complete control over who we are and what we are and that we can define personhood any way we want to. And that's applied in two dramatic ways, human sexuality and human life itself. The unbelieving mind, the demonic wisdom of this world says, you can be anything you feel like. It has no connection to anything that you are physically or biologically or sexually. You can define yourself any way you want. Now, that's just absurd. It would lead to anarchy. But that's human wisdom. And human wisdom says... If you're a woman and there's a life pulsating within your body, human wisdom says it's only a human life if you want it. But if you don't want it, it's not a human life. And think about the implications if we if we all lived that way, that we, at the end of the day, get to determine who and what a human being is. Can you imagine? But for the common grace of God, we don't always experience the full consequences of our illogic. But this is what James is talking about when he says, wisdom from the world that is demonic. Wisdom from the world says... I can follow Christ and not believe his word. Human wisdom invades the church, invades denominations when it says, yes, we can profess to be Christians, but we will not take up our cross and follow Jesus. We will not obey the word and be submissive to the word. And we have entire denominations who say we're Christian, we just don't believe the Bible. How illogical, how absurd. And here you have entire denominations swamped in the demonic wisdom of the world. And by the way, I'm getting, I'm getting a little more bold in my old age. Maybe that's the opposite of what should happen. But I feel desperate. And if you're in one of those denominations, you need to run. You need to run. If you're in a denomination that has abandoned the Word of God while still trying to cling to the title Christian, you need to run. That's the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world says religion is only good because we need a basis of morality. And so Jesus is the great ethicist. He's the champion of social justice. 
but not the bleeding, dying, rising Son of God who gave his life as a ransom for sins. Now that's demonic wisdom that turns Jesus into a champion of somebody else's cause. And this is what James has in mind. This is exactly what he has in mind. There are only two kinds of wisdom. What kind do you have? What kind do you have? Well, we don't want that kind. We want God's wisdom. And what is God's wisdom? We need to put a definition on that. We're going to finish this paragraph, hopefully next Lord's Day. We're just thinking about wisdom. We're just trying to get the term out there this morning. You know, what, what is wisdom? What is this good wisdom, this, this wisdom from above that we need? How would we define it? Well, we can look at Scripture, and we can come up with a composite picture of it, a composite definition of it. And when we look at all the detail and throw it in the oven, here is what pops out. Simply put, the kind of wisdom James says we need is the ability, the God-given ability, we'll see that next Lord's Day, the God-given ability to put into action the truth that he has seen fit to reveal. Now, we want to back up and explain that a bit further. You can see that for the Bible, for James, the kind of wisdom we need is very closely connected to the Word of God. The Word of God and wisdom are inseparably related. You, you cannot be wise in God's way of reckoning wisdom apart from the knowledge of God through His blessed Word. This is the problem in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve wanted to be wise, but out from under the Word of God. And you can't do that. Oh, you'll be wise but the same way Satan is wise. No, godly wisdom is, is under submission to the Word of God. Now, now, it's more than simply a knowledge of the Word because, you know, even James will say that the demons believe. They've read the Bible. Satan knows the Bible, and certainly he doesn't have the kind of wisdom we're speaking of here. The difference is trust. Trust in the God who has spoken. Fear of the Lord who speaks. And that is precisely how the Bible defines wisdom. You know from Psalm 110, or rather 111 verse 10, you, you know it. You can say it from memory. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now this is the wisdom that James says we need. It is connected to the fear of the Lord. We often don't re re rehearse the whole verse. We often only quote that section. The actual verse reads this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. And there are the linkage between the word spoken and wisdom. A wise person fears the Lord. A wise person submits to the Lord and his word. Wisdom in the Bible has really nothing to do with intellect or how smart one may or may not be. It's much more than knowledge or intellectual ability or cleverness or education. But it is, it is about fearing the Lord. 
about believing his word, about loving and serving, about acting and behaving on the basis of what he has said. And if that's true, then we understand the antithesis of that. The fool, the fool isn't the one who didn't make it to the third grade. No, the fool is the one who disregards the Lord and his word. Now that's the fool. In 1 Samuel 13, you know the name Samuel, who was a little bit of everything for Israel, a priest, a judge, a leader, but he was God's man. Samuel, God's man. He made the transition between the judges and the kings of Israel. And there was King Saul. One day Samuel went to Saul to confront the king for his bad behavior. And he says something that's so instructive as we think about wisdom. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of your Lord. Are you beginning to see that wisdom is not about intellect and neither is folly neither is foolishness. Then there's this line from David in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. The fool can have four or five PhDs. But if his conclusion or her conclusion is there is no God, then The Lord says, there's a fool. That's not a wise person. And then we recall something Jesus said, and I bet you all the children here this morning will know this one. Uh, When I read this passage, it takes me back to vacation Bible school for some reason. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But listen to what Jesus said, and let's plug these in and and see the connections. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Jesus says the same thing the Old Testament says about being a fool. The fool is the one who doesn't believe the word of God, who is not submitting to the Lord of the word. That's the wisdom we need. Wisdom can only be our possession if we belong to the Lord through faith in his Son. For those of us who've confessed Christ as Lord and we've received him as king, the resurrected Savior, and received his spirit, then then the spirit of wisdom lives in us. Our eyes have been opened to the truth of God's word. The darkness of our understanding is, is cured and being cured, we're no longer of a depraved mind. The the mental shackles of sin and rebellion have been broken by the powerful grace and mercy of the Lord. And the one who is the very embodiment of God's wisdom has found a home in our heart. But now, if we belong to Christ, it is our responsibility to cultivate a life of wisdom, God's wisdom. 
to seek more of it. To recognize that we often lack that wisdom and we need more. We need to know the Word and know the Lord of the Word and put into practical application the things that His Word says if we're going to be wise. Wisdom comes only from God the Father. You can't find it in any human institution or any man. In fact, the sad truth is all human institutions are polluted with folly. Anything our hands have touched have brought the pollution of demonic wisdom with it. Wisdom only comes from one place, from our Father, from His Son, who is the wisdom of God. Now let's stay within the context of this passage and make one very important observation. You can see what James is saying. He's writing a letter to Christians like you, churches like this one, that are carrying out their mission on a battlefield in hostile territory and many are suffering and many will suffer and there will be many trials and many tribulations that will bring themselves into our experience until Jesus comes and so he's writing a letter to encourage these saints like you and me and churches like this church to be faithful even though it costs us something to follow Jesus and he's making this connection if you want to survive this and not simply survive it, if you want to survive it with joy, you need wisdom. And so the wisdom that God gives is especially helpful in times of suffering. One has written that this wisdom that we're going to see next Lord's Day, we ask God for. This wisdom helps us understand life and the world around us. It guides us in our conduct, and it helps us pass through the maze of life's problems and complexities with a joy that cannot be accounted for by anyone except the work of God. It is the wise person who's filled with joy. It is the wise person who's able to rejoice at all times and in all conditions simply because he or she sees that there is a purpose behind God doing what he does, allowing what he allows, taking us where he takes us, giving us what he gives us, withholding what he withholds from us. It is the wisdom that lets us believe that a mighty God is in control of all things and that's the totally new way of thinking that we must embrace the wisdom of Christ the wisdom that strengthens every believer the wisdom that fortifies our minds against any assault of the enemy and any kind of tribulation that might come the wisdom that is Christ himself we need to think like Christians think, not like pagans. To be wise, we must have Christ. We must confess that He is Lord.
We must repent of our sins. We must submit to him as king. That demands humility. Christ is our Lord. I am not. His word is truth. His word is our command that requires humility. And it requires that we ask for God's help to read the news, to interpret our own situations, to see life through His eyes, through His revealed Word. In other words, wisdom allows God to interpret the world for us, not man. And wisdom demands that what God teaches us from His Word, we put into practical application. We not only know it, but we live it. We live it. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's wisdom. That's the wisdom we need. That's the wisdom, as we're going to see, God will give to whoever asks it. He will give it, and he will give it generously. It just so happens that a few moments ago, and this wasn't certainly planned, but that hymn, that great hymn, Be Thou My Vision, that old hymn, Did you hear what you sung a few minutes ago? Were you listening to your own lips? That line, be thou my wisdom. Thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great father, I thy true son. Thou in me dwelling, I with the one. May our prayer be, Lord, be my wisdom. Let me slough off the old way of thinking and think like one of your children. May God help us. May he bless his word. Amen. Praise his name.